Well, good afternoon, Kaleo. Uh, we are meeting on this beautiful Resurrection Sunday, even every Sunday for that matter, because of why? It's because of the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is foundational. It is the foundational reason why we gather together as church every Sunday. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that has transformed us. It has given us new hearts. It has given us new minds. It has given us new desires for the King, for our risen Savior, desires for his word. But sadly, you know that this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, it's been distorted and it continues to be distorted all over the world in all the different churches. There are parts of the gospel that have been removed. There are things that have been added. There are things that have been distorted. It's been diluted. And beloved, this precious gospel that you and I cherish not only needs to be proclaimed in every generation, it needs to be protected in every generation. This glorious gospel that you and I celebrate every Sunday needs to be not only proclaimed in every generation, but it needs to be protected. It must be defended because the gospel is always under attack. And I know there are a lot of theologians who made statements like that, similar to what I said. Martin uh, Luther, R.C. Sproul, they say something similar. The, the gospel always needs to be defended in every generation. It's so true. And sadly, that still speaks in volumes today, that truth. Uh, this glorious gospel goes all the way back to the, when the church was a new church uh, in the first century. Paul wrote in a letter to, in, to the uh, churches in Galatia how he was quickly, he was so astonished that they were quickly to desert the gospel of grace that they went to another gospel. So it is very easily uh, deceiving for many churches. It's easy for churches to be deceived to, to acquire the false gospel. And that is the name of the game for the devil. And we're looking at 1 Corinthians today. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is actually the longest, the most extensive treatment of the doctrine of the resurrection in the entire Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And Lord willing, you have three pastors who are going to do their best to get through all of this. But this is the most extensive treatment. If you want to learn about the resurrection, it's not just about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, the whole argument of this chapter is to argue that there's also a resurrection for believers. That's the argument that Apostle Paul is making here. A lot of people in the Corinthian church were saying, yeah, we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the resurrection of Jesus. A lot of them were saying that, but they denied the resurrection of believers. And so Apostle Paul is actually rebuking them. Before we go into my section here, verses 1 through 11, let me open this up with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time in your word I thank you that we can uh, gather together as your saints. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you will work in each uh, message, this triage sermon, if you will, that you will work in each speaker and that you would uh, guide our words as we speak and remove distraction from all the listeners. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Let me read our passage here. It's verses 1 through 11. I'm thinking about reading it now. I might just read. Uh, verse by verse if I go, but open with me in your Bibles. The first Corinthians chapter 15, we'll look, be looking at verses 1 through 11. So because of time's sake, I won't read all 11 verses. We'll just go through it as we go. Um, in these three verses, when Paul is developing his argument about that there is a, a resurrection because Christ is resurrected, 
we too will be resurrected. Paul is giving three important Paul is giving three important principles about the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the true gospel? So many professing Christians going to churches today are embracing the wrong gospel. They have the wrong gospel. Either the church has added things to it, they have the, they've either removed things from it, they diluted it. And Paul is addressing this issue because if you don't have the gospel right, then everything else in church is in vain. If everybody is embracing the wrong gospel, then you might as, might as well just close up the church doors and go to the bars if there's no such thing as a true gospel. But there is a true gospel, Paul is saying. And here are the three important principles about the true gospel so that we can make sure we are embracing the right gospel. The first principle is that he gives us the characteristics of the true gospel in verses 1 through 2. The characteristics of the true gospel. The second important principle is he gives us the content of the true gospel. The content of the true gospel in verses 3 to 7. And the third, the last but not least, principle is that he gives us the consequences of the true gospel or the results of the true gospel in verses 8 through 11. So let's look at the characteristics of the true gospel. He talks about, if you look at the very beginning verse, he opens up with the conjunction now. Um, I should have put my Bible there, shouldn't I? Uh, he opens up with the word now. Now I make known to you, brethren. I'm looking at the New American Standard Bible um, just because I thought it was my ESV, but I grabbed the wrong translation, but it's still a good one. So I'm, I'm reading from the New American Standard uh, providentially today. It says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. What he's doing here, he's making a transition of thought. He just gave instruction to the church about spiritual gifts and also worship order. Now he's talking about the characteristics of the true gospel. And he wants, his intention here is to strengthen the Corinthians' understanding of one of the most important parts of the gospel, particularly the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you notice in your scripture, in the first few verses, you see the word which, that relative pronoun, the gospel which I preach to you, the gospel which you also received, which you also stand, which you are being saved. All of these relative pronouns in the Greek are actually clauses, okay, to introduce clauses that are characteristics of this glorious gospel. So I know the ESV only has three, but the fourth one is comes before the verb preached, the gospel which I preach to you in verse one. And essentially that's the first characteristic of the gospel. It is preached, beloved. This, this word preached can also be translated as proclaimed or evangelized. The Greek word there is euangelion. That's where we get the word evangelize or the, the beautiful uh, name, female name evangeline. It means gospel, to preach, to gospelize. You see, the gospel, we are not to share the gospel with other people as if the gospel is an option among many other options. It's like saying, hey, I see that you're following Buddha in that religion. Why don't you try Jesus? Give Jesus a try. That's what I mean by sharing. That is not the message of the gospel. The message is that God is making an announcement to the world and you must believe 
the good news of this message. God is telling the world something through the mouth of Christians. It is God's message, and therefore it must be proclaimed with the authority of God. It is preached. The second characteristic of the gospel is where we find it says, which you also received. You see that? Which you also received. The gospel message is not only to be proclaimed, but it is also to be received by the hearers. And the verb received has multiple meanings in the Greek, just as it does in the, in the, in the English language. But here, this is the intense verb of receive. Uh, we do the same thing in English. Say, for example, uh, Pastor Rapp sends uh, one of you at your, your church and said a letter and say, you know, an, an, a handwritten letter to you. And you have received this letter from him, right? But then you open up this letter and like, wow, how nice. It's thoughtful, handwritten letter. Then you read it. Then you realize this is a letter of rebuke. And he's telling you things that you're doing during the week that are contrary to what you're doing on Sunday. And basically you're living a double life. It's very hypocritical. And he says he's rebuking you and he needs, he is praying for you to repent of your sins and that he loves you. And you're thinking, wow. Now, if you're proud, you would not receive that letter very well. But if you are humble in heart and you look at that and truly examine yourself, you would receive that with love and instruction. And you would embrace that and you would thank Pastor Raph for giving that letter. That is the kind of receiving Paul is talking about here. It is the kind of acknowledging that it is true. It is the kind that embraces it. It lives, it breathes it. This letter is to be received. And this gospel is not a, a suggestion. It is a strong rebuke to the pride of man. It's a strong indictment. It means to accept something as true, to acknowledge it, and to embrace it. Like that is the, how the gospel is to be received. Many professing Christians today, they claim that they understand and believe the gospel, but they have never received it. They never embraced it. The third characteristic of the gospel, beloved, is that we stand in the gospel. You see that in the phrase there, in which you stand, in which you've stood. And this is a wonderful image that Paul is giving us here about the product of the gospel. After you have received and believed and embraced the gospel, it is in the gospel that you and I stand. This image here of standing is the opposite of falling. Everything that we have as Christians and possessed and do as a church is because of the gospel. Look at what you're doing right now. All of you looking at each other, we're sitting down, Pastor Stephen. No, 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 you are standing in the gospel, beloved. Every day in your life as Christians, after you embrace the gospel, you're being upheld by the gospel. You meet today with the church because of the gospel. Without the gospel, we have nothing to offer to this world. Without the gospel, we have nothing to stand on against the evil forces of this world. And this verb stand in the Greek is in the perfect tense. And it means that you have stood up and you're standing and you're continuing to stand. You live your life day by day standing and being upheld by the gospel. It's an ongoing position. Paul uses the same imagery in Romans chapter five, verse two, when he says, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We continue to stand in the grace of God. The gospel and our faith in it cause us to be able to stand and to continue to stand in this broken world full of death, full of sin, full of opposition that's against us and Christ and his word. So the characteristics of the gospel, beloved, is to be proclaimed. It is to be received. You continue to stand in it. 
And fourthly, you are being saved by it. We don't have time to talk about this. I wish we did. But there are basically three aspects for salvation. There's a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. And I'll put Eddie on the spot. Uh, Eddie's taught this to the youth, and uh, he knows a lot. So you want to talk more about it with someone, talk to Eddie or me or Pastor Raph, Pastor Rick. But basically, past tense of your salvation, you were saved from hell, from the penalty of sin. The future tense is that you will be saved from the presence of sin and suffering. But the present tense of your salvation, what Paul is addressing here, is that you are being saved. That's the present tense, meaning you are being saved from the power of sin. Sin is no longer a master over you. You have a new master, Jesus Christ. There's no longer a pattern of sin in your life. You're winning over sin. Yes, you struggle and fight sin every day. You're growing in your holiness. You don't, you're not sinless, but you become, you're becoming, yeah, you sin less. So that's the aspect he's talking about, that you are being saved. That is called sanctification, beloved. For the sake of time, there's another verse that mentions uh, our, our ask, present tense aspect of salvation, that we are being saved. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And he says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being saved. Uh, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, excuse me. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So that is a wonderful uh, description of the gospel is that we are being saved by it. Let's move on to our second point of our sermon. This is the content of the true gospel, beloved. Okay, so if you're looking at verses three to seven, okay, I'm not going to be able to cover every single phrase and statement uh, in this 11 verses. I just want to highlight these important principles that Paul gives us here in order for us to, to understand that we are embracing the right and true gospel. So the second important principle is in verses three to seven, he gives us the content. So before he gives us the content of the gospel, he gives us the characteristics, right? We all should know the content of the gospel, right? You, you can go to the children, uh, the young children of our church, and they'll tell us, yeah, Jesus died for our sins, you know, on the cross, he was buried, and so forth. Beloved, when you are evangelizing, when you are gospelizing, when you are announcing the gospel to people, Never do it like this. Jesus came and he died on the cross for my sins and he paid the penalty for all my sins and I have received forgiveness for my sins and I'm going to heaven. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. What is it then, Pastor Stephen? That is only half the gospel. And what is the other half of the gospel, beloved? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So many times, so many people give the gospel of Jesus Christ and they talk about his death and they talk about receiving forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's all wonderful. But they stop right there. Where is the resurrection? Jesus rose from the grave and he defeated death. And if you believe and trust in him, not only will you re uh, receive forgiveness of sins, but you too will also defeat death and have resurrected glorified bodies that will live forever and be fit for heaven where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more cancer, no more autism, no more disease, no more disabilities, no more sin, no more evil, no more violence, no more tears. You'll be free from the power and the presence of all those terrible things 
in the presence of absolute joy and pleasures forevermore of our glorious Savior and King. That is the gospel because of Jesus' death and resurrection. If you go through the book of Acts, beloved, do a, a cursory reading through that entire uh, book, you'll notice, do they spend more time talking about the death of Christ or about the resurrection of Christ? Go take a look. Now, if you look at your Bibles again, notice that the content of the gospel that Paul includes in verse three to seven. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that's the Old Testament scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, of first importance, the gospel is of first importance. Beloved, there's a great concern today about protecting the true gospel because there are so many well-meaning people today who are wanting to elevate social issues in the same level of importance as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Things such as racism, sexism, injustice, inequality, all these social issues, they do need to be addressed, but they are not to be addressed at the same level of importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, as the matter of first importance. Beloved, there can only be one first importance. What is the first importance that the Apostle Paul is talking about in these verses? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the most succinct, succinct statement in verses 3 to 4. Jesus died, was buried, and was raised. He included that little statement there was buried because what do you do with dead people? You bury them. It's a confirmation, a little piece of uh, fact there that he died. A lot of professing Christians elevating social issues to the same level as the gospel, saying that these social issues are a gospel issue, when in fact, these social issues are not a gospel issue. The gospel issues is that Jesus died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again. And you need to respond to that. You need to repent of your sins and call out to him for forgiveness of sins. And if it's a free gift of salvation. And if you don't, if you hear the message over and over again, you reject it, that message of the gospel will be, will be used against you on the day of judgment. That's the issue here of the gospel. So the content of the gospel, it's quite similar. Don't leave out the resurrection when we talk about it, when we announce it. And let me finish up with this. I only got like another minute left. The consequences of the gospel. We talked about the content I'm sorry, the characteristics of the gospel. We talked about the content of the gospel and now the consequences or the results of the true gospel in verses eight to 11. Um, of course, all these eyewitnesses, they confirm the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we move on, after all these 500 witnesses, Paul talks about himself, the last witness. Right? That he's the last eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Isn't that interesting? He says, I am the last. Chronologically, he's the last. So if anyone claims that they see Jesus Christ today, they're either lying or they're deceived. Paul was the last person to have seen the resurrected Christ. There ain't no one else after him. Okay, so don't follow any man or woman that says they've seen Jesus Christ. But the consequences, the results of their true gospel is simply put one word. It is humility. Look at Paul's last words in verses 8 through 11. This is a, a healthy picture of self-identity here. I mean, it's amazing what he says about himself. Despite all his accomplishments, all his achievements, 
that he was a, a, a well-studied, well-versed Pharisee in all the scriptures. He was basically the leader of the apostles. He did all the signs and wonders and all the healings. Basically, Paul is giving us a demonstration here that when you encounter the gospel, when you receive it, when you embrace it, when you fully understand it, it humbles you. Because there's no proud person going to heaven, a person that's proud unto God, I would say. We all have pride to some degree. But a person that has a pride that they are trusting in their achievements, they're not trusting in the Lord. And Paul here is showing us that you lower yourself continually, it's a lifestyle, and you continually exalt the grace of God in your life. That is the consequences, the result of the true gospel. It is sincere, genuine humility from encountering the holy God and receiving forgiveness of sins, knowing that there's nothing you can bring to the table for your salvation. Well, that is essentially Paul's argument uh, of the gospel of Christ's resurrection. And now we have Pastor Raph, he's going to give us the necessity of Christ's resurrection. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Stephen. And uh, it's good to uh, hear you preach. And I really appreciate your introduction to that, verses 1 through 11. Unfortunately, uh, I preach quite a bit longer, and I have verses 12 through 34. Um, so I, uh, Kaleo Mission, I know you guys aren't uh, conditioned for that, so I'd say put on your seatbelt, and uh, it's going to be a bumpy ride. So we're going to get through this quick, uh, but uh, we're going to do it in a way that's honoring to the Lord. And so um, with that being said, I will be tackling verses 12 through 34 here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the first section that we're going to look at is 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. I'm going to read that and then dive right in. Uh, I am in the ESV Ryrie Study Bible. Uh, follow along if you can. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, we are of all people most to be pitied. So Paul very quickly gets into this um, basically ifs, and he's explaining this. If, if you believe this, and if this is what you teach, this is what you say, this is what you grasp onto, then this is also what you are saying. This first part we're looking at is the denying of the resurrection. And so if you deny the resurrection, if you deny the resurrection of the body of Christ, if you deny the resurrection of the church, 
um, and Christ being the first example of that resurrection, um, then you're going to have to deal with all these other things because you cannot believe one without uh, admitting to or embracing or submitting to these others. Now, with this, these use of the, these ifs, Paul, he begins to explore the consequences or explain the consequences of believing in these. And so basically, if you deny the resurrection of the body of Christ, the believers, and I must say that uh, Pastor Stephen did a wonderful job explaining that first part and just uh, giving us a great picture of the gospel in and within that. Um, but some also believe that they didn't believe in resurrection at all. I'll get to that in a moment. But as the church uh, or believers or here in Corinth, um, they understood the resurrection of Christ, but then they didn't pass that on to the resurrection of believers. And there's a reason behind that. But he first refers back to Christ in this first part of our passage to his resurrection and basically saying, how could some of you believe such a thing? Now, many of the Greeks in that time believed that, or they had a strong belief system of this, okay? That there was no life after death as far as the body. The body was dead. It was in the grave. It's done. It's worm food. And then the soul or spirit could live on. So this is some of that, that overlapping or some of that culture that have seeped into the church or that was brought in or carried into the church and the belief system of the gospel. They believed that after death, that that was all that really took place. So therefore, the resurrection of believers was impossible. So if Christ was not resurrected, the gospel is useless and all is for nothing. And basically, this is what Paul is trying to help them understand. Look, if you deny the resurrection of believers, then you're denying the resurrection of Christ. And some even had agreed to that. Yeah, we deny the resurrection of Christ. We don't believe that. There's so many different theories that are out there. Um, I'm not, we have no time to go into uh, any of those, but you can, you can research them on your own or you can message me later and I can talk, discuss those with you. But there are so many to try to explain the resurrected Christ and how he walked in, in bodily form um, and even just being reminded of doubting Thomas to where he told Thomas, go ahead, put your hand in the wounds here in the side and you can see that I am real, that I have been raised from the dead. So Paul's saying, if you deny this, then all of these other things are futile. They're worthless. They're nothing. They, they, they're senseless. Why do we do them? Therefore, the apostle's testimony that God raised Christ essentially would be a lie and that God could not do this. And so if there is no resurrection, then that means there is no risen Christ. And if there are no risen Christ, then that means our faith is misplaced and our sins are ultimately not forgiven. One of the things that I've had the opportunity to do over several years is to talk to many other belief systems that are out there, um, whether they're different religions or beliefs or followings or cults, whatever it may be, and, and uh, even those that don't want to believe in anything. I'm, and I would uh, essentially get to the point of after telling them the gospel, and then they'd tell me what they would believe, and, and I would say, you know, bear with me for a moment and think of this. If I'm wrong, what is the consequence? 
And they said, well, there's not really much consequence besides, you know, you've wasted time or money or you look silly. I said, okay. And then I had asked them, well, what if you are wrong? What's the consequence? They said, well, if I'm wrong and you're right, consequence is hell in accordance with what you're telling me. And that's one of the things that Paul is essentially trying to help them understand. Listen, if, if it's not Christ, right, then this is all silly. It's all nothing. It, it's frivolous. It's worthless. But see, it's not false. It's not wrong. It's not a lie. It is true. But think for one moment, for one second, what if you're wrong? What is your consequence? All Christians who died putting their faith in the risen Christ basically, ultimately, have perished, have died if Christ was never resurrected. He did not conquer sin. He did not conquer death. He was never raised from the grave. It was all a hoax. But see, the thing is, is that those that have that belief and those from a a Greek background are brought in that culture. We see a glimpse of that in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, I'm going to give you that. We're not going to turn there. I'll briefly mention it. I'd love to turn you there and walk you through that a little bit, but I don't have time. But Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 32, and essentially as as, as they talk about Jesus and being raised from the grave of being raising the dead, and it's like they chuckled at it, they laughed at it, they dismissed it, they thought it was a joke. But the thing is, is it's no joke at all. We, didn't, we can also see how the resurrection or the resurrection of the dead of what was to come was preached in the Old Testament. I'm just going to give you some uh, brief references here, and I I encourage you to do a little homework and look at them and find some other ones as well. But in Job chapter 19, verse 26, Psalms chapter 16, Daniel chapter 12. Go and look at those and see. But basically we see through these ifs, Paul is really beginning to challenge not only those in the church, but those outside of the church. And we'll see that towards the end of of my section um, that that I'm taking you through this journey on uh, to really understand that, look, if you claim this, you really need to give an answer for all these things because you can't come and believe this and think that everything else is just going to line up perfectly. It doesn't work that way. So we looked at what the consequences are for denying the resurrection, right? And, and, and Paul walking us through that. Then this next section, verses 20 through 32, is our hope is in the resurrection. Our hope is in the resurrection. Now back in our text here, it says, but in fact, Christ has been. So, but in fact, so he's giving some answers and he's essentially setting them straight. He's like, look, you can't say this and believe this. Because if you say this, and this is what you're really believing, this is what you're really saying, regardless if you want to accept it or not. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came, death by a man has come, also the resurrection of the dead." For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own 
order Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of, of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are, are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if... Humanly speaking, I fought with beast at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, he's beginning to show us and transition or segue into understanding. Like, look, our hope needs to be in the resurrection. Okay, now I know it can be confusing. And to be honest with you, verse 29 is one of the most not, not the most, but one of the most difficult verses to really try to unpack and to understand. Theologians go back and forth quite a bit on that. I'll address that in a moment. But now Paul affirms that Christ's resurrection is the true, is true, and is a guarantee of the resurrection of those who have died as believers. Now, we know that man is responsible for death, and we see that in Genesis chapter 2 through Genesis chapter 3, and the resurrection of the dead now also comes through man, who is what? Christ, right? For Christ is the first, and Christians shall follow. Now, at the end of Christ, um, at the end, Christ will come and he will reign as the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth and everything under his feet, Right? And when this is finally accomplished, Christ will regain the submission of all things to God, just like it was in the beginning, before the fall of man. And it is Christ's resurrection that is that guarantee. It's the same for us today. It is his resurrection, right? It is the guarantee. Now we have to think, we have to remind ourselves, especially on what? Resurrection Sunday or some of us call Easter Sunday, right? That's why we have Good Friday. He dies on the cross, right? And then three days he rises. That's why I say he has risen, okay? Because if he didn't raise from the grave, then what? Well, then the prophet, right? Or the, 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 the testimonies and everything before that, it, it, they were false because it didn't happen like the scripture has told us that it would. So Paul continues um, to push forward and, and to, to really mount a further argument for us against those who deny the resurrection of the body and the 
essentially helping Christians understand what those consequences are if they deny the resurrected Christ or they deny the resurrection of the body of Christ. Why? Because they walk hand in hand. We see in verse 29, it's one of the harder verses. I mentioned it briefly um, a couple minutes ago, but basically it's, I'm going to try to help us understand this, right, or interpret it as best as I can. So we, we, we don't have a lot of time, but I'm going to try to be precise and to the point. First off, this verse does not teach by any means that a dead person can be saved by another person being baptized for them. Or it does not mean we are to baptize the dead. Some religions out there believe this. Baptism has never been a part of someone's salvation. Baptism has never been a part of someone's salvation. Baptism does not save. But believers do get baptized in the name of Christ, and as a symbolic method of submersion, it is a reflection of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So Paul's point here is that if there is no resurrection and no life, right, um, basically that uh, offered then, why are, why are we doing it? What's the point? Okay, it's all for nothing. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that. You can go there if you want, but I'm going to quickly turn there. Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul tells us this. Okay. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It's very clear here. Verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Christ was the first to come to be that example of what is to come for us. Pastor Stephen gave a brief description and some insight into that and essentially a glorification, right? There will be no disease. There will be no sin. There will be no sickness. We will be in glory with the Father and the sun. Now, the high persecution during this time was constantly part um, of what Paul's mentioned here, and something that he he really needed other believers to truly understand. But his in his own way, he explained to them on how he is to die daily, that he sacrifices himself daily, that he rejects his flesh and the desires of of the flesh to be part of the world, to deny those daily. Essentially, he denies the world and its influences to the point that he has fought off beasts, right? Now, in this uh, beast of Ephesus can be a spiritual battle or it can be something that is literal. Um, there's some commentary on this. It's, it's not very clear, in my opinion. It's still a little vague for me to be exact and to push that forward. Um, but basically, if it is Christ's um, but if Christ is not risen, then what is the point, right? And he keeps coming back to the same thing over and over. This is why he quotes Isaiah 22, verse 13, right? 
So if none of this is anything, because if Christ was never raised from the dead, he did not conquer death, he did not truly wipe away the sins of man, then what's the point? Let's go eat, drink, and be merry, right? It's one of the references that Pastor Stephen made. It's like, well, if this never happened, then let's leave the church, leave the pews, and go to the bars. That was the reference that he made. But essentially, speaking of the backslidden hopelessness of Israel, this is why he quotes Isaiah 22, verse 13. Now, if we go and we look at Matthew 16, 24 to 26, we can see that we are called to deny ourselves and to pick up our crosses daily ultimately referring to being a living sacrifice. See, this is one of the things that especially in our current culture and society today that the, specifically the Christian churches struggle with is to self-denial. We love to give in to our flesh and our own desires and our own wants and what we think we need and what we think or what we feel should or should not be opposed to submitting to the Scriptures as opposed to denying self. And see, this is a reference that Paul gives. Like, look, you need to deny self. You need to pick up your cross daily. You need to cling to the cross. You need to cling to the resurrection. You need to cling to the gospel. Essentially, this brings us to our last two verses, verses 33 and 34. I know I'm probably over my time a bit, but I'm sure you will forgive me. Verse 33 do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as, as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. What a rebuke. Now leave it to Paul to give us this rebuke, right? And to point us like, look, you need to stop messing around. He wants to warn us. He wants to warn them here in Corinth. You need to stop listening to and being led astray by these false teachers, these heretics, these essentially these wolves in sheep's clothing. And right now, this is more prominent than ever, in my opinion, in our current age. Wolves in sheep's clothing, what has been seeping into the, to the Christian church is appalling. It goes against Scripture. It goes against what we see in the Scriptures to how so much of society, the world, and culture comes and seeps its way into the, to the Scriptures. And essentially, this should not be so. And this is what we see here in Corinth. This is what we see. Don't we see this over and over again in the New Testament church? And Paul continues to address it over and over and over. As a, as a 21st century church, westernized Christianity, right? Shouldn't we take heed to this? Shouldn't we listen to these warnings? Shouldn't we see uh, some comfort in these warnings and say, okay, hey, are we falling into the same trap? You see that in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Um, please write it down and look at it when you have a moment. But they look like sheep. They look like shepherds, but they are wolves. They are snakes. That is a reference to Genesis. But basically, we need to understand and we need to be reminded that He has risen, and He has risen indeed. And if we deny the resurrection, we deny Christ. And you will always, always see other religions, other beliefs, those who don't believe in anything, attack the resurrection. Why? Why? Because without Christ, there's nothing. 
And that is our hope. And that is where our faith is. And that's why we keep pushing on. If you have time, go to Matthew 28 and look at verses 5 through 7, and we can see the empty tomb and that encounter. But remember, he is risen, and he is risen indeed. I'm sure I'm past my time. Uh, I'm going to pass it over to Pastor Rick. Thank you, Pastor Raph. So this is the, the third leg uh, of today's sermon of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, <clears throat> and typically, this is not how we would normally do it. Uh, but uh, we just wanted to touch upon all the main uh, important truths uh, revolving around the issue of resurrection uh, as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday today. And so uh, the first part, uh, Pastor Stephen did a wonderful job of of explaining and going to uh, Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians here, addressing the issue of resurrection and really kind of uh, laying down uh, the, uh, the gospel, what makes gospel true, what makes gospel gospel, right? And it revolves around the issue of, of uh, the resurrection. Uh, and second portion, uh, and there's a ton of things in there, but uh, Pastor Raff, uh, again, once again, did a, just a wonderful, uh, gave a wonderful message on the necessity of resurrection and, and, and the reality of it. And in this last part, uh, Paul goes into uh, the hope that we have as, as Christians, as believers of Jesus Christ who resurrected, and as believers, as followers of him who rose from the dead, that likewise, we have hope in this reality of resurrection uh, in our life as well. Uh, so I'm going to overlap just a little bit uh, to give you know, some information that Pastor Raph already covered. Uh, so in the first century pagan mind, right, outside of the Christian faith, uh, the immortality of the soul uh, was an unquestionable truth. Most people believe that. Uh, and so the resurrection of the body was an absurd idea to them. And so they separated the soul from the body. Uh, but it was also true among some Christians as well. Some Christians also believe that eternal life uh, was about immortality of the soul only, uh, which led them to, to live a, such a life that with their bodies and how they lived their life didn't matter much at all uh, because uh, what was, what truly mattered was having the assurance of immortality of the soul was the essence of the gospel, and that's all that mattered. Now, this obviously uh, was an unbiblical uh, view, and, and this still exists uh, among Christians uh, even today. Now, if not by propositional confession of so-called believers, then certainly by uh, their attitude and lifestyle uh, of people who call themselves Christians. And what I mean by that is this. Yeah, there are a ton of, lot of people who call themselves Christians, but they pretty much live whatever way that they, they want with their body. They do with their bodies whatever they want, right? Because the basic idea that 
that they have in, in terms of their faith is that, well, all that really matters is that my soul uh, goes to heaven, okay? And that is not a biblical view. And so in typical fashion, Paul here, uh, he addresses this, this errant view and he strongly refutes it, right? That this view that believers continuity, right? From this life to the next uh, was separated, was separate from one's body. And he, and, he, and he refutes that by showing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was at the heart of the gospel and the resurrection of the Christian's body, bodily resurrection of all believers, uh, was uh, and is a logical consequence of it. So in this passage that I'm dealing with, which is the last third part, verses 35 uh, through 58, Paul explains the nature of the resurrection for Christians. And I want to break it, break it down into three sections. The first, uh, Paul's deals where he goes into uh, this analogy of seeds and bodies. Uh, and the second section, he goes into uh, the first Adam and the last Adam, who is Christ. And the, the third and the last section is the victory of Jesus Christ. So in this first section, which is verses 35 to 44, he goes into this talking about uh, seeds and bodies. Okay, seeds and bodies. In thir verse 35, he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And then Paul says, in response to that question, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So to the question uh, that somebody raises, how are the dead raised? Okay, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they, you know, uh, do they come? Uh, Paul's response is, you foolish person. Okay. Now, why, why, why would Paul, uh, why does Paul respond that way? Well, because the answer was obvious, as his analogies uh, will show. Even as the physical resurrection of the dead is the supernatural display of the power of God, the transformation of one life form, a life that, that it, you know, has one form or one mode uh, to another mode or another form is clearly seen in God's natural creation. So this is where, again, he, he uses the analogy of seeds and bodies. He goes into you know, wheat, right, grain. Uh, it has two forms of existence. The second is only realized if the first form, which is the seed, dies in the ground. Right? So uh, this is a common knowledge in the ancient times. It's a common knowledge today that if you want to grow a plant, obviously we could buy a plant, but uh, we could also buy seeds and plant it and water it, make sure it gets enough uh, sunlight and so forth. Then uh, we can expect this, this uh, seed to grow into a plant, whether it's a fruit plant or whatever it is. It is God who has determined the future form of each kind of seed in his creation. And God has created each life with different flesh. And this is what, you know, again, he, he, he goes into this as well. Uh, humans, animals, birds, and fish. God has created all these different life forms with different flesh. 
The same is also true of heavenly and earthly bodies, meaning, uh, you know, the moon and the stars and such, uh, the same way that we are to understand. Uh, and the resurrection of the dead is no different. It is like the seed that is sown in death and raised immortal. It undergoes a glorious transformation. Sown in dishonor and weakness, it will be raised in glory and power. And in this section, in verse 44, Paul concludes by saying, it is sown a natural body, it is raised in a, uh, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. And so he concludes by uh, summarizing it this way. Okay? If, there's a, if there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And then he goes into the second section uh, where he talks about the first Adam and the second Adam or, or the last Adam, who is Christ, in verses 45 to 49. And he says in verse 45, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Or in 45, it says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So the first man, Adam, uh, became a living being, okay, physically living being, according to Genesis 2-7. And the second Adam, or last Adam, Christ, uh, was a life-giving spirit. So Adam's descendants, the children, and the children, you know, his children's children, and so forth, shared his nature we share his nature the physical uh life the physical body as well as uh, the corruption uh, due to uh, sin while those who are born of god on the other hand share christ's nature which is spiritual and incorruptible just as christians share the likeness of adam so they shall also uh, share and bear the likeness of Jesus Christ, right? For those who are in Christ. So for Christians, there is a guaranteed continuity of existence with the resurrection of his or her body and its transformation into the very likeness of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. All right, so I know that uh, there are people, non-Christians, that believe in eternal life. And, and, you know, where they get that, I'm not certain, but... Uh, there are non-Christians who believe it. And then there are non-Christians who believe that once you're dead, you're dead. You just disappear. Well, that is not the case. I think before, before the most part, Christians, uh, you know, some may be even kind of questionable in terms of how they live. But if, you're, if you call yourself Christian, mostly they will believe in eternal living eternally, right? In, in eternal life. So this idea of 
living this life physically here, but once we die, we enter into some form of existence uh, in eternity. But what is being addressed by Paul here is that this continuity of existence for Christians is through the resurrection of the body, okay? Not just the salvation of, of our soul and that we will exist in like a ghost-like state, invisible and so forth. No, it, it's going to be, we're gonna be given a glorified body with which we will continue to exist with our God. And that is the likeness of Jesus Christ. First, the seed must die, and then the spiritual body will emerge. The last section, Paul talks about the victory of Jesus Christ, verses 50 to 57. Right? This is the outcome of the resurrection, which is Christ's victory, the vanquishing of death itself. So in verse 50, it says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So the transformation of the natural body through resurrection is a necessity because of what he is saying here, because flesh and blood, the natural body, the earthly body cannot inherit the kingdom nor can the perishable inherit the imperishable. And in verse 51, he shares what he calls a mystery. That not all of God's people will die, but it is absolutely certain that all will be changed or transformed to have a resurrected body. And then he says, in a moment, right? In a moment. How is this going to happen? In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, which is in reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will, will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So the moment that Jesus Christ returns at the last trumpet sound, the dead, those who had uh, died before the coming of Jesus, second coming of Jesus Christ will be raised. But in that resurrection we will be raised imperishable right? we will have a glorious body and we shall be changed transformed right to uh exist to live uh, eternally with our god uh having the uh the nature of jesus christ and when this happens isaiah's prophecy will come to pass okay? and this is this is the reference uh, to Isaiah 25 and verse 8, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Right? So upon the second coming of Jesus Christ and all believers will be raised imperishable, this Isaiah's prophecy will come to pass. And those who belong to Jesus Christ, death's power will be forever removed and of the two questions asked in verse 55 the quote uh, of isaiah's prophecy "O death where is your victory O death where is your sting the second question is answered in verse 56 and paul says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law 
What he's saying is that sin was the cause of death. And through the law comes a realization of sin's overwhelming power. And the answer to the first question, O death, where is your victory? Paul answers it in verse 57. He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ died and when he was buried, he invaded the domain of death and he robbed death of its sting when he resurrected. This is the great victory in Christ's resurrection and ours for which God is to be praised and thanked. Right? And this truly is the good news, isn't it? I mean, I... Absolute agreement and a very, very important point that Pastor Stephen made in the beginning when he said, if all we should say in the sharing of the gospel and say, Jesus, love God loves you. Jesus died for you. For your sins. That's not the gospel. Well, the best that I could say about it is that's only half the gospel. Because if you leave out the resurrection, there is really, truly no good news. And as uh, Pastor Raff uh, shared and he taught about why the resurrection matters, because if there's no such thing as a, a bodily resurrection of Christians, then, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been resurrected, then everything is, everything is just uh, a lie. It's, a, it's, it's, it's just useless. And we are to be pitied, pitied uh, among all men. What a glorious truth it is as we celebrate the resurrection. And I hope and pray that it is not only uh, during the Easter uh, season of each year, uh, but every day. This ought to be the, the great truth with which we live, with which uh, we have hope and we are motivated to live uh, for Christ. We absolutely we absolutely share in the victory of Jesus Christ because he resurrected and he prom God promises our resurrection on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he, in conclusion, he says in verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So the conclusion of all this teaching regarding the resurrection against false beliefs is a command to be steadfast or stand firm and to not move from the gospel that was preached to them and to hold to the reality and the certain hope of the bodily resurrection of God's people. And how we must live, what must we do with our bodies, which is to be resurrected when Jesus Christ returns, or well, we are to live in such a way uh, that displays that great truth. So with our bodies, uh, we are not to live according to this world. We are not to be led away into sin. Rather, we are always to be given fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, Whatever we do in our life with these bodies, this labor of faith, 
that it will not be in vain or that it will not be uh, empty in the end. So what is the work of the Lord? I think John uh, says in, in a way that, that I'm sure we can understand in John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And in verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. And the work of the Lord is to believe him, to believe God, to believe Christ, to live according to the word of God. And our work of faith will not be worthless and that we will receive the Lord's reward for the good done in the body at the judgment seat of Christ. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And for Christians, we must do good in our life. We must do the work of the Lord. And we who die in the Lord are truly blessed because we cease from our labor and our good works will follow behind us. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13, it says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. How precious it is for us to live for our God in this body. Right? As at times it may be a great struggle to do so, it is a precious thing in the sight of God. Therefore, let us be steadfast, brothers and sisters, and hold fast and immovable in the gospel of our risen Lord Jesus Christ, not allowing any false beliefs or worldly temptations to detract us from the glorious reality and truth of Christ's resurrection and our resurrection in him. Amen. Let's all pray. Father, we are so grateful as we are, all of us are once again reminded of this most amazing truth according to your gospel, that Christ rose from the dead. And because of that, we have hope of our resurrection when he returns. Father, help us to live with that reality and with that hope, knowing that whatever we do in our life, as our devotion to you, as our service rendered unto our God, faithfully following our Lord Jesus Christ, None of these things will be in vain. Lord, strengthen our walk with you today, in this coming week, and for the rest of our lives, knowing that resurrection is true. Father, we thank you, we praise you, and we love you and help us to love you, not with just words, but with faithful life of obedience to your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.